0: This is a podcast of First Presbyterian Church of Trenton, Michigan. A gospel-centered community seeking to glorify God by making, maturing, and multiplying disciples. For more information, check out fpchurch.tv.
1: Our scripture lesson this morning is found in Luke chapter 15, starting at verse 11. In this chapter, our Lord has shared three different parables, talking about... God's love for the lost, a parable of the lost sheep, a parable of the lost coin, and now this morning a parable of a lost son. We call him the prodigal son. Follow along as I read for you, starting at verse 11. And he said, there was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me and he divided his property property between them not many days later the younger son gathered all that he had and took a journey into a far country and there he squandered his property in reckless living and when he had spent everything a severe famine arose in the country and he began to be in need and so he went and hired himself out to be one of the citizens of that country who sent him into the fields to feed the pigs And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate. No one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father. I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. And bring the fatted calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate for this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found and they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of his servants and asked, what these things meant. And he said to him, "'Well, your brother has come, "'and your father has killed the fatted calf "'because he has received him back safe and sound.' But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, "'Look, these many years I have served you "'and have never disobeyed your command, "'yet you never gave me a young goat "'that I might celebrate with my friends.' But when his son, this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed a fatted calf for him. Then he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It is fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive, and he was lost and is found. Now shall we pray. Father when we read this familiar parable what else can we do but rejoice at your great love and mercy and kindness for we put ourselves exactly in the shoes of this prodigal. We know exactly what this parable is talking about. A wayward son who's gone his way and squandered all of his resources and Turned his back on his father. But his father has received him and embraced him and showered him with love and grace. Lord, that is exactly what you have done with us. We were lost, but now we are found. We didn't find ourselves. We didn't do anything to merit or deserve or earn your love and grace and kindness and compassion. All of that has come from you, for you are a loving and caring God. So, Lord, we stand amazed at your grace, your kindness, your provision. Thank you, Lord, for allowing us the privilege of being in your presence, of being embraced by your love, of being showered with all of these spiritual blessings that are ours. And above all of them, at the top of the list, is the fact that our sins are atoned for, washed away, and we are on our way to heaven. So, Father, thank you for allowing us to be your children. Lord, you've given us a wonderful church in which we can serve, we can roll up our sleeves, and we can see opportunities all around us. We are, again, thankful for, oh, the faithful men and women who know that they are here for a purpose. And they lead, they teach, they pray, they serve, they minister in in very quiet ways but faithful ways. Some of them are privileged to uh, be up front, to be on the stage literally and figuratively, and others are just quietly working in ways that only you know about. In every case, Lord, we count it a privilege, a wonderful privilege to even be included among your servants. And so we pray that as more and more people come our way, as we open our doors, and as we are unselfish, about spreading the good news to those around us. May we welcome them and embrace them. Lord, as, uh, as some folks will be in our new members class and uh, as Josh will be sharing some of the things about our church, we just pray you would use these, these moments and these times uh, to cement a relationship between them and, and us as a church. Lord, our hearts go out to those uh, down in Florida and in, in Southeast uh, uh, United States, who have been impacted by this terrible storm, and uh, Lord, again we know that many in our, in our extended church family in the in the Evangelical Presbyterian Church, as we have already heard reports of damage that is done and and hurt people who have been hurt and property that has been destroyed. In every case, Lord, surround these dear folks with your your consolation and your encouragement and your support and help them to get back on their feet and uh, continue to love you and serve you. We are reminded that we never know what a day will bring, whether it be a terrible storm, whether it be simply a a personal accident, whether it be a change in our health. Each day brings its own joys and challenges. We, We live one day at a time, and we keep our eyes focused upon you and, uh, Lord, to that end, we again devote ourselves afresh. Now, Lord, uh, speak through Pastor Carr as he shares reflections and thoughts and, uh, um, and, um, and the study that we have before us in this passage. Help the words that Aaron uh, shares with us not merely be his own, but may they be words that come from you, and may you speak to our hearts through your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.
0: Good morning. It's a blessing to be with you this morning. Um, I don't know about you, but I have a routine every day before I leave the house, before I leave my office here, before I leave pretty much any place. And I'm going to show you what that routine is. Ready? Check keys, right? Check wallet, check cell phone. And I go through that routine every time I'm about to leave. And some of you are nodding because that's similar to your routine. I want you to think about the importance of that routine because recently I did all of those checking and I still forgot something. I forgot my coat. In Michigan, coats are important. You never know when it's going to go below zero and when it's going to be 90 in the same day. Um, But we were out doing some visitations and I checked all of my my specific areas and saw that i had everything and was ready to head out and soon later in the day i was at football practice working with the offensive lineman and it dawned on me i don't have my coat it's cold out here and i don't have my coat and as i began to think a panic began to come over me i began to think of all the places i went all the all the places it could possibly be and this is one of my favorite coats And I began to become panicked, and the offensive linemen started to see that I was distracted from what I was supposed to be doing, because I was actually thinking about, where is my coat? Well, I recruited a few helpers, and eventually I got that call that it was found. And let me tell you, there was great rejoicing when my coat was found. Now, I share that story with you because I want you to think about the importance of the things I just talked about. I want you to think for a moment the importance of car keys. They connect us to our mobility, to our freedom. Um, I remember when my grandmother had to give up driving. I remember it was heartbreaking for her because in her many ways, she lost the freedom of her mobility. Uh, losing your wallet is to lose not just your uh, resources and sense of your bank account, you can lose your identity. And that changes everything. How about losing your cell phone? You lose The connectability you have with everyone, even a jacket, can leave you cold. Now, I tell you that there was joy found in finding that jacket. There would be great joy found in finding a lost phone or a lost wallet or lost keys. And yet, all of those things are temporal. Amen? All of those things really in the perspective of life don't matter in regards to eternity. And yet, what do we do for them? We search and we search. We enlist help. And when they're found, we rejoice. The question before us this morning is, how much more should we be rejoicing when people who were lost are now found? How much more should that make our hearts leap? See, we should truly celebrate when a sinner, a person, a human being... Was lost spiritually is found. That should bring great joy. And really, that's the point of the 15th chapter of Luke. In fact, there are three parables in this story. Uh, Pastor Ian read one, and I just want to look at the other two as well and put them together very quickly to give us that sense of the rejoicing that Jesus commands regarding sinners repenting to understand the context we need to understand that really there is a tale of two different types of responses those who rejoice and those who don't do me a favor and look at chapter 15 verse 1 now the tax collectors and the sinners were all drawing near to hear him and the pharisees and the scribes grumbled i want you to hear what this says They were saying, this man receives sinners. He even eats with them. Notice the grumbling versus the receiving. Notice the grumbling versus the complaining. Those are the two responses that one can have regarding how one handles sinners. Yet Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. I'll remind you, that's the part of the life of Christ that we're in. Jesus' eyes are fixed upon the cross. He is moving towards his death. Back in chapter 9 of Luke, he said, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and on the third day be risen. That was his mission. His eyes were fixed. And along that mission, that meant loving sinners. Jesus, during this time, has received quite a reputation. He's received a reputation as a teacher, for he teaches as one with authority, it says. He's received a reputation as a healer, for the lame walk, the blind see. He does all sorts of miracles. That was the reputation. And yet there was a third reputation that was associated with Jesus. He is a friend to sinners. Amen. He is a friend to sinners. He's a friend to tax collectors. Those who are cheating their own people while paying Rome's taxes. Sinners, those who were living in open rebellion to the command of God. And these sinners, these tax collectors, were drawn to them. They were drawn to Jesus. And what are we told? Jesus received them. Jesus received them. The Pharisees, the religious leaders of the day, did not like Jesus' reputations. They didn't like Jesus' reputations because Jesus taught differently than they did. Jesus healed on the Sabbath, and Jesus received sinners. So they grumbled, they complained. In verse 2, when it uses the word grumbled, I want your mind to go all the way back to the Old Testament. I want you to think about those Israelites of old in the wilderness as they grumbled against God. It's the same word. Isn't it ironic that the Israelites of old and the Israelites of Jesus' day both grumbled against God? So in the midst of this grumbling, Jesus does something what does he do does he send lightning from heaven to consume them no jesus teaches that jesus teaches in a parable a parable literally means to come alongside a parable is a story with a hidden meaning jesus cared enough to offer understanding to any that had ears to hear that's important Jesus took the time to offer clarity for any that had ears to hear. He wanted them to understand what it was he was doing. Jesus wanted them to understand what the story, his mission, his purpose, the gospel was really all about. Jesus actually cared enough to explain. Jesus' actions were intentional wanted to make it clear what he was up to and what was it that jesus was up to but simply this jesus came to save the lost praise god for that good news for many of us we've heard this so many times we're comfortable with it almost to the point where we get no emotion at all but jesus came to save the lost jesus came to save sinners And see, Jesus says there should be rejoicing at the news of that. There should be rejoicing, not grumbling, not complaining, but rejoicing at the news of the gospel. It forces us to kind of sit for a moment in just those first few verses and ask the question, do we grumble? Do we grumble at the good news that sinners repent? For understand that when sinners repent, that means they're going to be around. They're going to want to be in the worship place. They're going to want to be in the Bible studies. They're going to ask questions that we might want to roll our eyes to or feel that we're too far beyond. But do we truly rejoice in the fact that sinners want to be near Jesus? Jesus did. And Jesus called his church to rejoice that sinners were drawn to him. So Jesus tells three different tales, three different parables with one simple meaning. Rejoice! 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 That's his point. Jesus begins with the story of a lost sheep. Many of us have heard it. In in the beginning here, in verse 3, he tells a parable of a man who had a hundred sheep. A man who had a hundred sheep, according to verse three, he says, and if he lost one of them, does he not leave the ninety and nine to go to the open country, in the open country to go after the one that is lost until he finds it? Let me tell you a story. When I was a little boy in Sunday school class, I remember hearing this story and I remember becoming angry. I remember becoming very angry. I began to think, how dare that shepherd leave ninety-nine good sheep? That's silly. How dare he do that? You no, know, when it dropped on me though that I was the one he was going after, it changed the whole perspective, didn't it? And when we realized for the first time that Jesus left the ninety-nine to go after us, well, that it makes sense. <laughs> I mean, after all, it's us. <laughs> But when he leaves us with the other 99 to go after another one, we begin to wonder, what are you up to? What are you thinking? How can this be correct? Yet, Jesus makes it clear that this is the mission of the shepherd, a good shepherd. Friends, honestly, the good shepherd is put in contrast with bad shepherds. The John 10 shepherd, the shepherd who lays his life down for his sheep, is put in contrast with bad shepherds, those who would leave the one to wander off and be devoured. After all, that's what was happening in Israel. That's what was happening in the New Testament with the leadership. They were more worried about their status and position than they were about the sheep. This wasn't anything new. Again, I drop you back to the Old Testament. In Ezekiel 34, listen to the words beginning at verse 7. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. As I live, declares the Lord God, surely because my sheep have become a prey, and my sheep have become food for all the wild beasts, since there was no shepherd. And because my shepherds have not searched for my sheep, but the shepherds have fed themselves and have not fed my sheep, therefore you shepherds hear the word of the Lord. Now watch what he says in verse 10. Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against the shepherds. I will require my sheep at their hand, and I will put a stop to their feeding the sheep. No longer shall the shepherds feed themselves. I love this part right here. I will rescue my sheep from their mouths that they may not be food for them. I will rescue. Isn't that exactly what Jesus did? Jesus came as the good shepherd to rescue the sheep. And he says, all those others who claim to be shepherds but are not willing to go after the one are not my shepherds. The good shepherd rejoices over the founding of the lost sheep In verse 5, when he finds it, it says he puts the sheep around his neck, he carries it. In verse 6, it says that when he he finds it, he calls together all his friends and his family. And he asks them to rejoice with him. Notice the word rejoice, joy. But then he says in verse 7, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. See, the point is, heaven rejoices over sinners who repent, shouldn't we? Friends, heaven rejoices over sinners who repent, shouldn't we? I ask you again, are you rejoicing over sinners who repent? You should. Because Jesus came to die for his sheep. Jesus then tells the story of the lost coin. It's a a woman who had ten coins and lost one of them. Understand, in the first story, he lost one one one-hundredth. Now, she loses one-tenth of her wealth. And any good steward who lost one-tenth would surely look for it. We're told she gets a lamp and she sweeps the house. And as she looks, she finally finds it. And in verse 9, upon finding it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying rejoice with me rejoice with me joy again jesus offers a caveat in verse 10 he says there is joy before the angels of god over one sinner who repents do you catch the rhythm each time the person finds what's lost they rejoice and then jesus makes it clear the rejoicing they do is nothing compared to the joy of heaven rejoicing over a sinner who repents. These two stories have shown us how a good shepherd who loses one out of a hundred goes and looks for it and rejoices when he finds it. A good steward who loses one-tenth of her wealth goes and looks for it, and when she finds it, she rejoices over it. Jesus makes it clear that searching for what is lost is a good thing. Rejoicing when it's found is an even better thing. It's something that is done in heaven. Yet again, we're forced to ask, are we rejoicing with heaven over sinners who repent? Jesus commands it. Jesus says, rejoice with me, friends, family. Rejoice with me. And now we look to the third story that Jesus tells. Went from one one one-hundredth to one-tenth to now the man has lost both of his sons. And you say, well, that's not the story, Aaron. He just lost one of his sons no listen to the story he loses both of his sons the younger son says in verse 12 father give me my inheritance now let's be very clear what the younger son is basically saying he's saying dad hurry up and die so i can get my wealth the audacity right well if you've ever been with a teenager you probably heard that before i hope not i hope we've never heard that before the disrespect, the hatred, the, the lack of love for one's father. Hurry up and die so that I can get my inheritance. And yet what I want you to notice is what the father does. He divides up the property between the two sons, we're told. Understand the older son would get a double portion, so the younger son gets one-third, but he gets that one-third now. And I want you to understand how the father made that possible. The father didn't just go into the bank and ask for A cashier's check, no, the father had to sell off livestock. The father had to sell off property. And now the family farm got smaller. The family resources got smaller. And once he cashed out, he paid his son the money that was his based upon his inheritance, and the son leaves But then we're told in verse 13 that the son wasted his inheritance. I noticed the words that Pastor Ian read, reckless living. Wild, reckless living. The things that we see happen on spring break in Florida are nothing compared to the way that this young man lived his life. Recklessly, wasting his inheritance. The family farm, the investment the toil the sweat the money was blown and then we're told as often happens in scripture came a famine it's always interesting to read in scripture and you mark my words on this every time there a famine comes something big is about to happen whether whether that's towards the people of egypt or the people of israel in egypt or whether that's joseph or whoever that is know that when it says That there is a famine in the land. You better be paying attention. Sit up straight. Something big is about to happen. And that's what happens for this young man. He is left destitute. In fact, he's longing to even eat, according to verse 16, what the pods that the pigs ate. He longs for it. It means he didn't even get it, but he longed for it. Here's this Jewish boy longing to eat what the pigs eat. Shows how low he is. Then in verse 17, there is the famous phrase, he came to himself, came to his senses. He woke up. He had that aha moment. And what happens in that aha moment? He realizes that the hired servants in his father's house actually have it better than him. And so what does he say? He says, man, I need to go back home and serve my father because at least I'm going to get eaten and have a place to sleep and be taken care of. And I love verse 19. It talks about him practicing his speech of repentance along the way. You can just kind of picture him as he's walking and talking to himself, telling himself what he's going to say when he sees his father. But he doesn't even have time to say the speech because his father, who probably sat by the family living room window, looking out and praying for his son, religiously sees his son coming up over the hill, and he runs to him. In our culture, we don't understand the significance of that, but understand that in that Oriental culture of the day, that Eastern Orient, it would have been taboo for an elderly man to run to a young son. He should have waited. That's what culture would have deemed. But out of love for his son, he leaps out of his chair, he runs to his son. And there he gives his son, listen to this, a hug, a kiss, a robe, a ring, and shoes. What is he saying by these? He's saying you're forgiven without him ever saying his speech. You're forgiven. You're not a servant in this house. You're my son. Here's the ring. Here's shoes for your feet. Here's my robe. You're a son. I kiss you. I hug you. I love you. The joy that this must have brought. According to verse 13, we're told that he throws his son the biggest bash of all time. The fatted calf is the calf that's set aside given the double portion of meal and is is, is waiting for that special occasion. And they wouldn't just celebrate a fatted calf because it takes years to get a fatted calf the way a fatted calf needs to be. They would wait for that real, 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 real special occasion. And this was it according to the father. He sacrifices that fatted calf. For his son. But then the story changes. The older son, the second son, remember I told you there were two lost sons. The older son, hearing the party, comes in from the field and he asks, What's going on? To which the servant, probably pretty happily carrying a tray and just kind of excited, kind of bouncing along to the music, he says, Your brother has come home and your father has killed the fatted calf. Isn't this great? To which the older brother says, You've got to be kidding me. Doesn't he know what that kid did? We lost a good chunk of our farm. We've lost livestock. We've lost investment power. He's hurt this place, and now my dad is throwing him a party? See, one of the things you need to understand is the younger brother already spent his inheritance. Now, anything that was spent was coming out of the older brother's inheritance. That's important here. So you understand the depth of his anger and bitterness and rage as he sees that his inheritance is being spent on that sinner. He won't come into the party. He salts. He's angry. And yet again, his father runs to him, his second son, his older son. The father leaves the party and goes to his older son, according to verse 28. And it uses this phrase that says, he entreated him. That phrase right there, he entreated him, means he appealed to him. He pleaded with his older son. Come in, celebrate, rejoice, rejoice. But here's the words of the older son. He says in verse 29, I've been slaving for you all these years. Friends, notice the word he uses, slaving or serving. It's actually, slaving captures it better. I've been slaving for you. That talks about how he views his relationship with his father, not as a father-son relationship, but as a hired servant. All these years, he viewed himself as a servant in his father's house. I've been slaving for you, he says in verse 29. And then he continues in this latter half of 29. He says, never gave, never have you given me a party. Never have you given even me a little itty-bitty goat. Shows his jealousy, doesn't he? Shows his anger of this festivities that are taking place as, as the parties ensuing and as a rejoicing over the younger son. And then he says something that really hurts in verse 30. He uses this phrase. He says, that son of yours. Wow, what distance. Now it all comes out, doesn't it? He shows his hatred for his brother. He's not my brother. He's not not related to me. He's your son. It's funny in our house, every time a kid does something bad, they're mine. That son, that daughter, right? That's exactly what we see happen with the older brother as he distances himself. He shows his hatred for his younger brother. And yet I want you to see in all this the father's response. Remember the goat comment. Remember remember the the fact that I've been slaving for you comment. Remember the comment, this son of yours. Listen to what the father says in verse 31. All I have is already yours. It's already yours. You you don't just have the little goat. you, You have the fatted calf everything i have is yours and then he goes on to say you should rejoice in your brother's return he who was dead is now alive He who's lost has been found you should be rejoicing you should be the one saying let's celebrate let's let's slay the fatted calf but this is not your response and it should be friends we're never told if the other brother ever repents we're never told if he ever enters the party Many commentators believe he never did. I'm holding out hope that maybe he did. Because the truth is, at times I can see the older brother in me. At times I can see how this story of the two lost sons, we oftentimes think of the younger son, the one lost in the world, but we forget of the older one who was lost in his religion. Or as Dale Ralph Davies likes to say, he was lost in the pew. Friends, it happens. It's not just that people are lost out there. People are lost in here. See, the point is we're all born in sin. We're all in need of a Savior. No matter if we're born in the world or born in the church, we all need Jesus. And this is why Jesus has come. He's come as the good shepherd, the good steward. In fact, he's come as the better older brother See, he not only came to save, Jesus came to rejoice in saving sinners. Jesus came willingly to share his inheritance. Unlike the older brother who wanted to keep the inheritance for himself, Jesus says, share it. Jesus says, I'll be the fatted calf, I'll be the lamb. I love them, I rejoice in their repentance. Friends, praise God for such an older brother. Praise God for one who came to seek and save the lost. One who truly loves them. One who truly loves us. That's right. Christ truly loves us. He does not go to the cross reluctantly. He goes to the cross willingly. He doesn't pray in heaven reluctantly for the church. He prays willingly. He doesn't come back to restore all things reluctantly. He comes back willingly. He doesn't share His inheritance reluctantly. He shares it willingly. And so Jesus has every right in Luke 15 to tell us we need to rejoice. We must rejoice. Friends, whether you're loved ones are in the world or in the pew we would rejoice if they came to jesus shouldn't we do that with all people so how do we respond how do we respond when those who've been lost have been found these three stories show us the joy we should have over repentance repentance according to our own catechism is defined as a saving grace get this repentance is a saving grace the point is repentance is a grace we're given repentance is not an action we've performed under our own power no repentance is a grace we've been given therefore we should all be thankful anytime we see repentance because it's an outpouring of god's grace too often though we're more like the grumbling pharisees aren't we as I preach this I reflect on my own life and how easy it is for me to grumble and complain rather than rejoice. And yet we must remember there is rejoicing in heaven even over one sinner who repents. Luke 15:7 I tell you there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous people who need no repentance. Church, may we rejoice when the lost are found and when the dead are made alive. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you and we thank you for the good news of the gospel. We thank you for our older brother, Jesus, who willingly shares his inheritance, who willingly and rejoices in seeing sinners come home, who willingly became the Lamb of God to take away the sins of the world. Thank you, Jesus, for your love. Help us to love as you love. Help us to rejoice as you rejoice. We pray these things in Jesus' name. And God's people said, This has been a podcast of First Presbyterian Church in Trenton, Michigan. For more information, please visit us online at fpchurch.tv.